0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I've been uh, working through the book of Philippians and we're up to verse 27 today, starting in verse 27 to 30. So just as a a reminder of where we're at here, um, we will continue uh, the passage where Paul was telling the church, if you remember, he said to live or die, it made no difference to him. Um, because his life was in Christ, there was no doubt in the mind of Paul um, when he was writing his letter, even as he was sitting in jail, that he was in Christ. And he was he was so content there to be in Christ. And because of that, there was nothing that would or that could steal his joy or his commitment that he had because of the unexplainable comfort that was his joy. And... Um, so whether he lived or died, he said he didn't matter because he was in Christ. And he was, he was so heavenly minded and, and, and focused on, on his task or on the gospel and, and what, and, and, and his life in Christ. It just made no difference. If he lived or died, he was in Christ. And so we want to read, uh, the passage and starting in verse 27. And uh, as he continues from that, And just to keep in mind also that he was writing to believers. He was writing to those who already had a good understanding of the gospel. Um, they, They knew what it meant to be saved and to be in Christ, the way Paul was telling them that he was in Christ. So, starting in verse 27, he continues. He says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so Paul is calling the church to live in a manner that reflects the gospel, the gospel that they know. This is a very, this is very common for Paul to do in many of his letters to the churches. We will see this many times in the New Testament. He teaches them, and not just Paul, but the other, other writers as well. They teach them the doctrines of the gospel. And then they, and then the call to holy living comes after the truth of the gospel is preached. And so the call to walk in a worthy manner of the gospel comes from, after the truth of the gospel. And it often starts with a, a therefore. Like in Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The therefore is in light of the previous three chapters where he explains the gospel to them. The call to holy living is always in light of what the Lord has done through his Son. The call to live worthy of the gospel is in light of what the gospel truly means for those who are saved. And the Philippian church was one that Paul himself had planted. He started that church. He had taught them the gospel. They would have had a good understanding of the gospel. And so Paul called... Call, so Paul's call to holy living here is not going out to those who are in need of the gospel, but rather those who understood it. Just a month ago, Lauren preached a good message on this very topic in 1 Peter 2, to 12 A call to godly living, he titled it. A godly lifestyle that is a, is a result of the gospel having an effect on our lives. And then just last week, Pastor Mike challenged us with a message that he titled... Um, sight or service. Who do we serve? Who is it that we serve? Who, who do we serve after we know the gospel? And these messages on services of service to the Lord, it was not planned. It's not that we came together and said, well, we need to focus on how we serve the Lord. It's, it's God's word. And God's word mentions this many times throughout the New Testament. It is an important, it is important to know to the Lord that we walk worthy of the gospel. It's important to him and that's why it's in the scriptures. And we also know he will and he does provide everything we need as children of his to do that. He provides for us what we need to be, to walk worthy of the Lord. Um, Titus two, you want to turn there for a second. Titus chapter two. Verses 11 to 13, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is the grace of God that has brought Salvation. It is, by, it is by the grace of God that we are being trained to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It's not because it will give us some glorious life on earth, but because we have a living and a blessed hope of being with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a future hope to be with Him for all of eternity. And so we know Christ as our Lord... If we know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are called to walk in Him, to walk in that. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore you, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. And so time and time again, we see this call to holy living in God's Word. And But we must remember the call to live worthy of the Gospel is not in some way to earn our salvation or in some way to add to the work of Christ to save us. never, never, does it call us to live worthy to some way add to what Christ has done? It is always a call to live holy because we are as new creations in Christ. We are new creations, and this is why it's so critical that we have the gospel right. The foundation of the gospel must be accurate, and it must be right, and we must have it clear. And um, the good news, the book that we give to our, our visitors, our guests that come here, and the book that we have all received from the church would be one that I would recommend that we all read because it helps to keep it clear, and then we're all clear on what it is that we profess. It is important to know the gospel, and it, we, and it is important to know it as the Word of God teaches it. Not as we think it might be, but as the Word of God teaches it. Mike Riccardi calls the book of Philippians the gospel-driven life. The gospel-driven life. A gospel-driven life is a good way to explain it. Explain this call to, to to living a worthy to living worthy of the gospel, because the gospel is what compels or drives the believer to live in a manner worthy of it. It is the gospel that does that, and when we have a correct understanding of the gospel, it will drive us to live in a worthy manner of the gospel. And so the call to walk worthy in manner can only be as a result of the saving work of Jesus Christ in all of us who are saved. The pillar of New Testament commentary, one that I use quite a bit uh, for this message, says the gospel of Christ provides the motive and the pattern for all Christian behavior. The gospel of Christ provides the motive and the pattern for all Christian behavior. And so as we look at, at this passage in Philippians today... Um, we will see that there are four things that Paul wants to hear from the gospel-believing church. Four things Paul wants the church to understand, and he wants them to apply to their lives as a result of the gospel in their lives. And first of all, he wants them to live worthy. And then, in turn, they will, uh, uh, as a result, they will stand firm, and they will strive together, and they will not be frightened. And those are the four things that I want to look at today that are on your outline. And so starting... Starting in verse 27 then he says, Only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Only. It's, it's a, he's standing that word alone there. He's only, he's, he's transitioning here from telling them about himself, um, in the previous text, his thoughts and his feelings of his present situation. Uh, in verse 25, he says he was convinced that he would come to them again and see them. And then here in verse 27, he switches from himself to the congregation who would be reading this letter. And he says, only, so whatever, um, the only thing he wants them to do, whether he is released from prison or he comes to see them in person, or if he just hears about them, or... F- or from them in some other form, he says he wants them to know that the only thing, this one thing that he wants them to do is to live their lives or to conduct their lives in such a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said, whether, whether I live or die, it makes no difference in the previous verses. And here he says, whether I come to see you and, or if I just hear from you, um, from someone else, the only thing that he wishes to hear is that they're living, living worthy of the gospel of Christ. Either way, Paul is content because he is in Christ, and either way with him or without him, he wants the church to live in a worthy manner. The NIV version of this verse for the For the first, like, for only let your manner of life be, it says, whatever happens, or in in place of the word only, it says, whatever happens. So whatever happens, whether whether I may come or or anything, this is the only thing I want you to do, and that is to conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be literally means to live as a citizen of a state, to live as a citizen of a state, or to exercise your citizenship. And so the thing to, one thing we want to remember here that the citizens of Philippi were Roman citizens. Being Roman citizens gave them certain privileges, um, that other citizens of Macedonia would not have had. They would have been exempt from paying certain taxes. They were maybe not, they were not subject to the authority of the provincial governor as the rest of the citizens of Macedonia would have been. And so they would have understood what it was like to live as a citizen in one state and yet live in another. And they were Roman citizens living in Macedonia. And it makes sense then that they would have understood what Paul was saying to them when he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Live as citizens in heaven while here on earth. They, as believers, would have understood that their life, that, that they are to live as heavenly citizens. And so he's saying here, the only thing I want to hear from you is that you are behaving as citizens worthy of the gospel. In chapter 3 of the same letter in verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul believes them to be citizens of heaven. He, he, he knows he's a citizen of heaven then when we go back to 127, we can see that in order for them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, which has saved them, then they should live on earth as citizens of heaven, that they already are. That God word, God's word tells them they are. Because in his mind, in the mind of Paul, and this should be the mind of every believer, that when Christ has by his grace saved us, we become citizens of heaven we become citizens of heaven and to, to see this we want to just uh, look at a few passages turn with me to Ephesians 2:19 Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 starting at 19 here he says so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. But this it was that that second line there that says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. And so we just see a clear picture of how it is through Christ that we become citizens of heaven. It is in Christ that we become fellow citizens of the household of God. And if then we are citizens of the household of God, should we then not walk worthy of being a citizen? Should we not walk in a worthy manner of that citizenship? As believers, we are a privileged people, and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8.39. And so then we can with all confidence live as heavenly citizens here on earth. There is no trial that can separate us and no hardships that can keep us from our heavenly kingdom that is to come. Turn with me to Romans Romans 8. Romans 8, and here we will read of another reason why we have become citizens of heaven. Romans 8, verse 14. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we as believers have been adopted. God chose us as His own sons and daughters. And this is an incredible thing for us to behold, to try and grasp or get our mind around. And when we have been adopted, then we belong to Him. When we become citizens of heaven, we should live as citizens of heaven. It is, a, it is a gift that has been granted to us. Back to Philippians, in verse 29, it says, For the sake of Christ it has been granted to us to believe in Him. It is for the sake of Christ to bring to Him, to bring glory to Him and to Him alone. And so we should desire that our lives are bringing glory to Christ for His sake. And that needs to be our objective as well as a church body or as believers in Christ to bring glory to Christ in everything we do, to live our lives as heavenly citizens. A quote from J.A. Motyer in his commentary, he asked the question, Are we notable for living a life worthy of the gospel? Are we notable for living a life worthy of the gospel? Why should people believe our defense of the cause of Christ if they cannot see Christ in us? Or take any notice of our offer of a saving Christ if they do not see the fruits of salvation and the beauty of holy living? I love that quote. Why should they take any notice of our offer of a saving Christ if they do not see the fruits of salvation in the beauty of holy living? Do our lives show the effects of Christ having saved us? Do our lives reflect our heavenly citizenship that is worthy of the gospel of Christ? And this is what Paul longed to hear This is what he longed to hear from the Philippians church, and I would suggest that that any true shepherd of God's people would long to hear about his own congregation. And if Paul comes back to Philippi, or if he hears about them from someone else, he wants them to hear that they are standing firm against the persecution that they will experience, like he had in the past. And, And he says, as he states in verse 29, he has he has experienced persecution in the past in Philippi, and he is presently experiencing persecution, and he wants to hear that they are standing firm and bringing living in a worthy manner for the, for their faith of the gospel when they are being persecuted. So daily living as heavenly citizens. In chapter two, Philippians two fourteen. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Colossians 1.10 says that walking in a worthy manner of the Lord is living a life fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. When the church of God does not walk in a worthy manner, we diminish the gospel. Then the church becomes stale and it is not the beacon of light in the dark world anymore. MacArthur says, when the unsaved look at the church and do not see holiness, purity and virtue, there appears to be no reason to believe the gospel it proclaims. When they don't see holiness, purity, and virtue, there appears to be no reason to believe the gospel that it proclaims. Do we do a good job of showing the world that conducting ourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel looks like? What that looks like? The gospel is the good news. The good news that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose from the grave. He defeated death and is interceding for the believers at the right hand of God. He paid for the sins. Of everyone who will ever believe and trust in him for their salvation, second corinthians five seventeen says, "If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Are we conducting ourselves as the new creations we are in Christ? This is the only thing that mattered to Paul when he wrote to the Philippians. It is the only thing that should matter. To all who believe. And as a result of living worthy of the gospel, then they will also stand firm in one spirit and one mind. And so number two then is standing firm or stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says, stand firm against the opposition. He goes on in in verse 28. To say, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. We will look at, we will look at that. We will look at not being frightened a little later. Sorry. We will look at that. But this helps us to see that Paul wants them to stand firm against opposition. He's speaking of being opposed for their faith. That is the context here. And so a firm standing church will be one that is in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In 1st Corinthians 16:13, Paul says, "Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love." And so standing firm would be like a soldier holding the line in a battlefield, never moving even an inch for the enemy. No conceding whatsoever. Standing firm for the gospel. The saving grace that has caused us to be born again, it has caused us to become citizens of heaven. And as heavenly citizens, we are to not give an inch to the world. We are to serve Christ and Christ alone. In Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And here they are to stand firm against the works of the flesh. That's the context there. He was addressing the ones who were trying to say circumcision was a requirement for salvation. We are to stand firm against the works of man. There were those who were trying to push a works-based salvation. They said circumcision was needed in order to be saved. Paul said, no, no, stand firm against such lies. In Galatians 2.15, we read, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. But through faith in Jesus Christ. And we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because of the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. We are to stand firm against the works of the law. And and we are to stand firm against the opposition that comes against the church. When others come against us for our faith, When our faith becomes offensive to the world around us, we are to stand firm and not back down in any way. Christians must not flee, compromise, give in, back down, or be divided when they face a hostile opposition. Paul, towards the end of this letter, in chapter 4, verse 1, he pleads with the Philippian church. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown." Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. He's urging them. He's pleading with them. To stand firm is a military term. It is in the middle of opposition, do not back down. And the only way that we can do that is to stand firm against opposition is if we are convinced of the cause that we are fighting for. And the gospel should be the reason enough for the believer to stand firm. Convinced to the point where we will not back down for anything, we need to stand for the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, whatever the cost. And by standing firm, it is a lot... E- by, but standing firm is a lot easier if you are not standing alone, if you have someone to stand with. If there are others who stand with you, If there are those who you can trust. And so Paul does not only want them to stand firm, but he wants them to stand firm in one spirit and with one mind. He's speaking to them as a group to the church. And and Paul wants to hear this because from his own experience, he knows how it is, how difficult it is to stand alone. And even in this very letter, Paul praises the Lord for his, for the partnership that he has with the Philippian church. Paul took great comfort in the fact that they were with him all the way, even if they were not physically with him. But according to 2.25, according to 2.25, they had sent Aphrodite to minister to Paul and to bring him encouragement. And we know that they were great supporters of Paul's ministry and they were faithful partners of his. And as much as this was such an encouragement for him, he also wanted to hear that of them, that they would stand firm, and he wanted to hear that they were doing it in one spirit and in one mind. And so what does it mean to be in one spirit? And God's God's Word teaches us that all believers are one in Christ. And we will look at this briefly here in Ephesians 2.18. Ephesians 2.18 and we read, we, we read this earlier, sorry, but it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We be, It's in through one spirit to the Father. The church is one body, and through the Holy Spirit we are one with Christ. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5, says, For as In one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual members one of another. And again, so through the Holy Spirit, we are one. And But it seems as though Paul is talking, again, back in Philippians, he's talking more about the human spirit. Most Bible translators seem to agree on this because... The, all the translations that I checked, it's, it uses the small s in verse, um, when he says to be an, in one spirit, in verse 27, it is usually a small s, a lowercase s. And in other places um, in the Bible where it talks about the Holy Spirit, it always, without fail, uses a capital S. And so it seems the, the translators think that he is talking of the human spirit here, but I found that there are many reputable theologians who would differ on this. that Some would say he's, he's clearly talking about the Holy Spirit, and others would say, no, he's more um, talking of the human spirit. And I found both arguments to have valid reasons as to why they believed uh, what they believed. And so the argument that Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit is largely because of the passages that we just looked at, where Paul is um writing to other churches and he's telling them how we are one through the holy spirit and it's it's common language for paul and so therefore they think he must clearly be speaking of the holy spirit here but the other argument that it is the human spirit is because of the context which paul is speaking of in in the in this text to the philippians that a, that is a, a text of personal attitudes and actions that he must be speaking of the human spirit or the will Kind of like saying, stand firm with your heart and soul, spirit and mind. Um, and so, but I think both were valid arguments. And I, I could not firmly land on one or the other. And um, but if but if Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit, or if he's talking of the human spirit, I believe we can come to understand that he is calling the call here is that the church be of one spirit and one mind, that the church is unified. The church is to be. Um, there's supposed to be unity in the body of believers. And Paul wants us to be of one spirit and of one mind. By the Holy Spirit, we are one, and therefore we should be one in our human spirit as well. We know it is only by the Holy Spirit that we can be one in our human spirit and with the same mind. And it is again a result of the saving grace of Christ. And so to be one in the human spirit and of the same mind is to practice the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That is to, to have love and joy and peace and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And this is the result only of the Holy Spirit. We can't do those without the Holy Spirit. And so all believers are one in the Holy Spirit. And Paul here is calling on believers to be like-minded in heart and soul, in spirit and mind, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. Being unified in one spirit and of one mind as a body of believers is extremely important. And, and, the, and a church that is divided is one that is not conducting itself in a worthy manner of the gospel. A church that is divided is, is not one that is conducting itself in a worthy manner of the gospel. And to see this, um, turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. He's speaking to this disciples just before he went to the cross. This is what he is commanding them to do as a body of believers, and that is to love one another. And by, by this, the people will know, the world will know, that you are disciples of Jesus Christ. And then a few pages later in chapter 17, verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only. This is Jesus praying to God. He says, I do not ask for these only, but I also Ask for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be even, that they may be one, even as we are one. This is the prayer that Jesus Christ has for each and every Christian who will ever believe in him that the church would be one with one another this is what will be the witness to the world that we are to be one as Jesus Christ is with God the father brothers and sisters this is a very high calling this is a great com- a great commandment from our lord and savior Jesus Christ this is a true sign of the church unity in the body and the, that unity must revolve around nothing else than the gospel. And a unified body strives together. How can we strive together for the faith of the gospel if we are not unified? And so that leads me to the third point that I want to look at. It, a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be a life of striving together. Striving together. As Christians, we are one. One which we've already seen, but we are many different parts, which we also know. We can look around and we see no two people alike. And these parts need to work together. Like any sports team that works together to win a championship, they must work together to win. And when teams truly work together, they don't just work together for their own benefit, but they work together for the good of one another. They work together for the good of one another. And this is what Paul wants to hear from the church, that they are striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together. A sports team can have one or two good players, but if they are not striving together with the rest of the team, they will not be successful. They will be fighting against each other. If they don't work in unison and 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 work and benefit from each other's strengths, they will not do well. Or maybe help others in their weaknesses. If there's parts of the team where there's weak areas, then the stronger ones need to fill in and, and help in those areas, and they will need to work together. It requires a team effort. And so when Paul says to strive together, he means to compete, to work together, to compete together. And as a church, we are all different individuals. We come in all shapes and sizes, in all different character traits, and there are no two the same people. And yet, we all have one thing in common as believers, and that is the faith of the gospel. It is the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all true believers have in common. MacArthur says that striving together in the church means playing as a team to advance the truth of God. And when we have the, the gospel right, we also want to advance that gospel. And so we, want to, we need to do that together. We need to strive together to advance the truth of God. And as believers, we have been given the gospel. It has been given to us. Back in Philippians, in in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says to the church, "'It is right for me to feel this way about you all, "'because I hold you in my heart. "'For you, the Christians, are all partakers with me of grace, "'both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the gospel. "'All believers are partakers of the grace by which we are saved.'" To Timothy, Paul says that we are entrusted with the gospel. In 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. It is a deposit entrusted to to believers, the gospel, the truth of the gospel. It has been planted in our hearts. And as believers who have the gospel, we understand and we have been entrusted with it. It has been implanted to us. And God has trusted us with this to take this to the world. And the gospel should be that one thing that should cause us all to strive together to advance the gospel. We are all different, and yet every believer has the implanted word of God entrusted into his care. When we don't focus on striving together for the good of the of each other or for the good of the gospel, then we become, in a sense, a useless team as a church body. When we focus on dislikes, on character traits of each other, rather than the gospel truth, or the, the the being of one spirit and one mind, then we become ineffective. We are no longer a team. And so our focus must be on the faith of the gospel. We have been entrusted with it, and we must work together to effectively bring it to the world, the gospel to the world. We must be unified in it. We must be unified in the gospel. We must walk shoulder to shoulder, striving together like a championship team. They don't leave anyone behind. They take everyone with them and they walk together. But when a champion team works for a common goal, they want the same for one another. Then they become an unstoppable force. When they really become unified, then they can start advancing then there is nothing that can stand in their way. Their confidence becomes unshakable, even through valleys and through hard times. The confidence in the gospel is what needs to carry us through. And so to be striving together must mean that we are striving together for the faith of the gospel and not for our, for our good only, but for the good of our brothers and sisters. It has to involve all of us. We must remain focused on the task at hand. The gospel must not leave our sight. It must be what compels us forward. It must be the gospel that keeps us unified as a church. And the gospel is what all Christians have in common. The gospel is our motivation to strive together for the faith, to keep one another from stumbling, to help one another in hard times, to be there for each other when opposition comes against our faith. So striving together in one spirit and of one mind, it advances the gospel, but it also stops the world from gaining ground against it. It keeps the devil from influencing the church. Striving for the gospel keeps us focused on the task at hand to know Christ and to make him known. And this obviously does not mean that opposition won't come. In fact, the opposite is true according to 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They will be persecuted. And so Paul is saying he wants to hear that they are living in a worthy manner, with one spirit and one mind, striving together, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, caring for one another, loving one another. Because persecution will come. If you desire to live godly, you will be persecuted. And... Again, in the beginning of Ephesians 4, it says that believers are to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so opposition will come against a godly church, a church that is striving together for the sake of Christ and the gospel. But Paul gives them one thing to keep in mind as they go forward. He says, do not be frightened by your opponents. He wants them to strive together to be unified in their fight for the gospel. But he also says, don't be frightened. That is number four. Do not be frightened. When the church stands together, there is no need to fear our opponents. When we are unified, we have no need to fear. There is strength in numbers. Paul says, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. And the first reason why we don't need to be frightened by our opponents is because we have God's own word telling us that there is nothing that can separate us from Him, which we looked, which I mentioned earlier, Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that can separate us. But second reason why we would not need to be frightened is because when we are not frightened and we are secure in our faith, it becomes a sign of destruction to the opponents, but to the believer it is a sign of true salvation. Verse 28, And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When we show that we are not frightened by those who are opposed to the gospel, it shows them that they are indeed Heading for destruction and maybe the best way to try and understand this what Paul is saying here it's um, like a bully who comes and he bullies someone or he tries to intimidate someone, they look for a reaction and when they when they can scare you and get you they get some sick or twisted sense of gratification from it, but when they get no response, it only makes them look bad it only everything if they're the ones that are trying to, to intimidate or bully, it makes them look bad when they get no reaction. It only makes them look tough if it works. But if they get no response, it only makes them look bad. And if we can show no fear to those who come against us for our faith, it only makes them look bad. It brings destruction on them only. It be, it, it turns it around on them, and they get to see themselves but the exact opposite happens for the believer who is not frightened by their opponents. That becomes a true sign of salvation from God. Only someone who has hope of an eternal home with Christ for all of eternity can truly stand without fear when suffering for the sake of Christ. One writer put it this way, a preserving faith comes from God and it is the fruit of His grace. He, it bears witness to the fact that it is God Himself who graciously strengthens and keeps. After all, it is God who completes the good work which He began in them. And that is what we saw earlier in chapter 1 as well, in chapter in Philippians 1, verse 6, where Paul says, I am sure of this, that He who began a good work and you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. He who began a good work and you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And so, if is God our source of trust, as He our source of strength, and it must be God alone who we trust. And we can trust Him, because it is God who has granted the believer salvation for the sake of Christ, as he goes on to say here. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. When we understand that it is for the sake of Christ, then we can truly consider it a privilege to suffer for Him. Many times through the New Testament, we can read that the apostles considered it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. In Romans, Paul says in chapter in chapter 5 or 3, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. But also, right here in Philippians, in the mindset of Paul, it is when he he when he when writes and he tells him how he is rejoicing because of his trial that he is experiencing because the gospel is, advanced, is, is advancing in Rome and abroad. You know, he's... He's in the midst of a trial, but he's experiencing joy because of the gospel going out. It is advancing. And so his source of joy is the gospel. And so it is for the sake of Christ that he is suffering and not for his own or anyone else. One more in 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, as we've seen earlier. And this is, in fact, a fact from God's Word. This, He he doesn't say maybe or depending on where you live or who you come in contact with. It says, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A life that is pleasing and honoring to God, a life that represents the life of Jesus Christ, will be persecuted for the sake of Christ. Paul knows this, and he is speaking from experience. He knows the suffering he had when he was in Philippi. He knows that they too will suffer as he did, and is currently suffering, as he says um, in, in 29, engaged in, this, in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. He knows that they will suffer. And he knows that if they live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, it will bring about opposition. And he's calling on them to stand united, to stand together, to fight together. This is actually, he says, only. This is the only thing he wants to hear from them, that they're living their life in a worthy manner and that they're doing it together. So in conclusion, I want to ask you today, Are you living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus? Are we, at Grace Bible Fellowship, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, are we striving side by side as one unit for the faith of the gospel? Do you consider yourselves one with each other through the Holy Spirit? Or when you look around, do you see ones you might be in agreement with on the gospel, but would not stand next to them when it came to defend the gospel. The Philippian church had a situation like that as well in chapter 4, and Paul urges, and I'm going to get these names wrong, I'm sure, but Ueda and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. They were both individuals that Paul loved. They were two women in the church that he loved and who had labored for the gospel with Paul, and yet there appears to be something between them. But Paul says to the church to help these ladies. Help them set aside their differences and help them to be unified in the gospel. It is becoming more and more evident that this world is becoming increasingly hostile towards believers. We have seen so much hatred come out towards the church in these past few years. Grace Life being a great example of that, when we follow the commands of God... Of God's word over the world's commands, we will face serious opposition. And I also think that Grace Life has been a great example of a unified body that has been able to stand united because they have their common goal in mind to advance the gospel. The day is fast approaching when we too will have to stand up against the enemy and we will need each other. We need to be unified and we need to be We need to love one another so we have each other's best interests in mind and not just our own. The Christian's fight is not described as, as against anybody or anything in this, in this text, but it is for the faith of the gospel truth. It is fighting for the faith of the gospel truth. It's not against someone or any person. And the only thing that can and does make us one with each other is the Holy Spirit. The gospel has to be our common goal. The gospel has to be understood, and it has to be our desire and attitude to live worthy of that gospel. There's one thing, and I mentioned this uh, alluded to this earlier, but the one thing that I believe would be true for every single true pastor or shepherd of God's people, and that is that the flock that has been given into their care would walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. That they would be growing in holiness and righteousness in the Lord. That they would be doing it together, side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel. Unified in the only thing that matters, and that is to make Christ known. And I believe that is, in a sense, what Paul is saying here to the Philippian church. As I wrap that up, there's nothing that would bring him greater joy the only thing that he wants them or the one thing that he would desire to hear about them as a church is that he would love to hear that they're working together, that they're united in that, that they're walking in a worthy manner of the gospel, and that they're doing it as a, as a unified body, as one unit, bringing glory to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning again, and I'm just so grateful for your word, Lord. I'm grateful for the effect that it has on my life, and I pray that it would continue to have an effect on my life, and I pray that it would continue to have an effect on us at Grace Bible Fellowship, and everyone who hears this, has heard this message this morning, or who will hear it, God, I pray that your word would would change us. It would help us to see one another as you see us, Lord. Help us to see one another as heavenly citizens and help us then to act as heavenly citizens on earth lord help us to look beyond our worldly um, trials um, our persecutions that come whatever we face lord help us to look beyond and look to you and to your promise to never leave us or forsake us to always be with us lord may that may that give us comfort but lord help us to be a comfort to one another to be unified as a body and to glorify you, Lord, in everything that we do as we go forward in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.